Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. On this episode, I'm going to be discussing a book curated by the founder of music football fatherhood, Elliot Ray, titled Dad, untold stories of fatherhood, love, mental health, and masculinity. Elliot, it's good to finally meet you in person. I know we've spoken a couple of times before in the past. Isola Bella is the name of the place that you've chosen to meet, a lovely Italian here in Hoburn. Tell me, why did you choose Isola Bella? So I would love to have some extravagant story about how I met my wife here and, you know, but literally it was our social media manager, Matt Brown. So when he hears this, Matt, it's either your fault <laughs> or you've done well. Either one, we'll let you know after we've eaten. So yeah, he recommended it. I love Italian food. Mm-hmm. I don't often go out to eat Italian, actually. Um, so people normally, do, and I think it's because Italian food has made itself so user-friendly. But when done right, it's yeah. just divine. And here, I think we're yeah. actually sat in a good example of a And place I think you're right, it. because I never thought about the reasons why I haven't. I love Italian food. Mm-hmm. But it's right, you know, you have pizza and pasta and stuff at home and seafood. So you think... Why would I go out and have a spaghetti bolognese? Or, you know. Yeah, right. But actually, a good spaghetti bolognese or a macaroni and cheese, you know, if it's done well, is amazing. Now, I feel like I'm catching you at the point at which your name gets known out there. Recently, you, you did a documentary for BBC One, Becoming Dad, and you've been on Loose Women. Um, what other spots have you had this week? So I think I did a radio interview on BBC Radio London on Monday. So I spent a lot of time running MFF, writing the community stuff yeah tell us a bit about yourself so mff this organization that you really founded music music football fatherhood yeah so it's been about six years now um and it all started obviously when i became a dad myself it was a tough start for us in terms of my daughter's entry into the world and and, and for me it was finding some some place to you know express myself a space where i could just share very small, you know, my own corner of the internet, if you like, up at 3am doing the feeds or whatever, <laughs> typing away at my laptop, nothing fancy at all. Over the months, I realised from the reaction I was getting that this was something maybe that other people wanted as well. So for the next year or so, kind of onboarded a couple of members of the team. We started sharing our thoughts together on the internet, you know, through blogs and stuff like that. And at that time, it was, there was no grand plan, really. It was just, we want to write about being a dad. Like it was literally that. And incorporate music and football that was it and at, at the beginning it started of you know what do I personally like doing I like listening to music and I used to play a lot of music with my wife in a, in a band I like football I love football and fatherhood was I guess the next journey the next part of my life so music football fatherhood to me just made sense but I guess what started as a very personal thing as has been something that I guess other people can look at and say oh I think actually that speaks to me it was a process of me you know, just, just doing this on the side, building the website, you know, learning how to code, a lot of late nights, learning how to code, you know, very DIY, not much money to invest. And then in 2017, I wrote an article for The Independent. I emailed it straight away over to them. Um, and basically over the next two days, it went viral. It got shared 22,000 times in the first two days. And this was in 2017. And that, I think, was the real launch, I guess, of MFF and me as someone who champions active parenting, equal parenting, dad's mental health, you know, well-being, that kind of stuff. 
And so from the point of the launch, one thing leads to another, and you curate a book titled mm. Dad, Untold Stories of Fatherhood, Love, Mental Health, and Masculinity, the book that we're going to be talking about over the mm. course of this evening. Before we go into your story, it might be a good idea for us to order a few appetizers. Can we do this every weekend? <laughs> the book is a collection of short stories, very short, some of them, including your own, capturing the experiences of 20 men becoming a father for the first time. So let's talk about your story. I was 31. We were married for a year and we were ready to become parents. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if men get broody if that's a, a thing, but I was definitely broody. And the pregnancy, as pregnancies go, was pretty easy for us. Um, but two weeks before the birth, uh, we got a letter through the post to say that she was carrying something called groupie strep, which is a, uh, a bacterial infection. 20% of women carry this infection through pregnancy, but it doesn't normally get passed on to the baby during childbirth. So we had a meeting with a midwife and they said, look, don't worry, you'll have antibiotics during childbirth and it will all be fine. So we were kind of like, okay, we'd read about the infection and found out that one in 10 babies die from it if it's passed on to them. And uh, one in 10 will have a lifelong disability from contracting meningitis from the infection. But anyway, the, the birth on a Saturday morning started about 3 a.m., her contractions. And we got to the hospital about 5 a.m. And uh, very quickly, we were taken into the side room, into the birthing pool room. And there was a few scares in terms of the baby's heart rate and in terms of my wife's blood pressure. So they moved us to another room. And that's when things got a bit more serious. You know, they were very, doctors were very concerned. There were a couple of points where we were in the room and the midwife we were with would push this big red button because she was worried about either the baby's heart rate. She couldn't hear the heart rate. Oh, my wife's temperature was going up a lot. So all these doctors would burst in and, you know, do these tests and whatnot. It was a long labor, that's about 24 hours. And my daughter arrived on Sunday morning at about 5 a.m. They used a, a von Schuss to take her out, which is a contraption you use on the top of the baby's head to bring the baby out. Mm -hmm. And so at that moment when, you know, you expect your baby to come out and you see from the movies, the baby cries and there's all that joy. When Eleni came out and was placed on, on my wife, um, she was very grey, very grey and didn't make a sound and was lifeless and just wasn't moving. And, you know, those kind of moments that you can never really prepare for, like you can never prepare for what, you're going to feel just seeing this, you know. And at the same time, my wife's just bleeding out. So the doctors are looking at my wife bleeding, thinking we've got to do something around that. But obviously, my daughter needs to be resuscitated and brought back to life. So there's a set of doctors on one side of the room sucking uh, fluid out of my daughter's airway with like a straw and giving her CPR. And then on the other side of the room, there's doctors around my wife talking about blood transfusions and stuff like that. So then they say to me, you know, what do you want to do? Are you going to stay? Are you going to go to ICU? So they've got my daughter breathing, luckily, and then they put her in an incubator. And they're like, do you want to come or do you want to stay? So obviously I went and I remember like, kind of going through the hospital and just feeling like helpless, you know, feeling really helpless, feeling numb, not knowing what to do. And as an adult, normally you know what to do in most situations. Or you have an idea of what to do, you know? Normally, I'm quite good under pressure. Like, when there's been emergencies, I'm normally quite, quite calm and, mm. you know, make, make good decisions and think rationally. You know, but in that moment, there was just nothing. And nothing, you, nothing to do. And that was maybe the start of something more serious, really. The fact that you couldn't access 
even the emotion that told you, I'm panicking. I don't know yeah. what to do. It yeah. was almost a complete blank. Yeah. So then what happens after that? So we spend a couple of weeks in ICU, up and downs, the infection's going and then it's not going. It went and then my daughter developed a bump on the back of her head. That was the hardest night of our lives because at that point the doctors were really concerned. She was born with a, a, a lump on her head? So it developed after a couple of weeks. Right. So the group B strep, they know what that is. Right. They can treat that. It doesn't, treatment doesn't always work, but they know what it is and they know the medicine for it. Mm-hmm. But this bump was something they didn't know the cause and they were concerned it was a blood clot maybe from so much antibiotics at such a young age. The nurses and the midwives were visibly concerned. You know, they, they were worried for us. They didn't, know what, they didn't know what it was and the doctors were obviously having conversations about you know, things. So we had to go through an eventually MRI scan and the, the, the night before the morning of the scan, you know, we just prayed. A midwife called Nagmeh joined us and we prayed with her for hours. We just cried. Literally, I cried for hours. Just the four of us in that room, you know. And then the next day, we went to go to the emergency MRI scan in the morning. Did that. Came back to the room. And the funny thing is, is that all through the two weeks, every three, three hours, someone would burst through the room to take even my wife or my daughter to get their treatment and when it finally came the, the midwife who did the MRI scan burst through the door and I just remember her arms are just, just out if you could see me right now obviously you can't see me but her arms are just out like this and she just ran to us and gave us this massive hug and it was like a family member you know I didn't, mm. we didn't know this particular midwife but it was like a family you know they're, they're, the NHS get a bad rep but some of the people that work there they just do amazing work and the things they see it must be so difficult to deal with this on a daily basis. And you no. write about in the book the fact that experiences that are so unique to the people involved. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not something that can be easily translated. No, it's, it's not. And I have so much respect for them, what they do and how they treat people on a day-to-day mm. basis. You know, Some of those doctors are amazing and midwives and nurses are amazing. We were able to go home. But I guess what happened was that was the... You know, the end of one chapter, but the beginning it of the sound next, like I guess. a happy ending. But as you yeah. say, you went through an emotional journey that took you from numb to thinking that your daughter was seriously ill or had something wrong to extreme happiness and euphoria and relief. And then you realized that something had happened to you. My wife actually received counseling. She was diagnosed with postnatal anxiety. I didn't think that it was a thing to even be able to receive support for traumatic birth like literally didn't cross my mind at all and nobody offered this to you as the new dad nobody even checked in and asked by the way how's your mental health yeah yeah. what signs were beginning to emerge that you needed some special attention that you you hadn't been getting up until that point so weirdly i don't think i ever got to the point where i felt like i needed support which is part of (laughs) the story i guess is that a lot of men don't you know we we suffer in silence where we are a lot less likely to seek support. When it comes to NHS talking therapies, only 36% of self-referrals are men. So women are a lot more likely to, to seek support, professional help, and talk to their friends. But we know the suicide rate, three out of four suicides are men. So men are less likely to support help, but more likely to take their own lives. You the know? biggest killer of men under the age of 40. Exactly. Yeah. I never had suicidal thoughts, but my story in not even thinking... It wasn't even like I, I wanted help and didn't seek it. I just didn't think it was a thing. Like it literally did not cross my mind. So there were times when um, the first, I would say, six months we were surviving. Kind of got to the point where we were getting into some kind of routine and we were giving our daughter dinner. We gave her a Weetabix for the first time because she only just started eating solids at that point. Gave her Weetabix. And within a few minutes, like her face just blew up. 
hives everywhere, coughing. Called the ambulance and they were like, we're going to be there straight away. Literally, they got there in a matter of minutes. Took us blue lights to the hospital. So we got there and they gave her steroids and antihistamines and all that sort of stuff. Basically, we didn't know at the time, obviously. She has EpiPens now for the wheat allergy. So, But we didn't know that. And Weetabix is the worst thing you can give someone with a wheat allergy. It's like 99% wheat, pure wheat. So we were just lucky, you know, we were just lucky that it didn't, she didn't have an um, anaphylactic shock where mm. you can't breathe. But she had everything else. So, you know, thank, the, thank God. Yeah, that small didn't blessings. But again, just one thing after the other. It yeah. felt like you couldn't catch a break. That was the KO for me. Mm. Funny enough, my wife dealt with it a lot better. Maybe it was down to the, her processing what had happened at the birth and the counseling she had had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, I just didn't deal with it very well. So there'd be times when I'd go to work and go up the lift, dread seeing anyone, try and say hi to my team, some that I'm managing. And, you know, they say hello and I can't like physically speak. So I'll just mumble. Having like a constant out of body experience kind of thing. Like you're constantly watching yourself. A very weird state of mind to be in. Flashbacks all the time. Becoming emotional over everything. Were you emotional at work at times? Didn't cry at work, but f- everything would hit a bit deeper. Mm. You know, mm. everything that happened, you overthink. So yeah, it was kind of that point where I felt like things were, yeah, things were serious at that point. But again, still didn't think to seek professional help at all. When was it that you knew that what you had been through was PTSD? So I took some time off work. I had, I had annually saved up. So I took like three weeks off work or whatever. From, you know, talking to my wife, taking things easy by that point i started writing i started music football father i started writing by that point and there was a journalist um from a magazine called motherdom it was at the time a new uh, magazine about well-being and perinatal health for parents so she got in contact with me through a mutual friend and we sat down and i think for the first time actually ever since my daughter was born someone actually asked me um about the birth and uh I'd, I was trying to talk through it and like it all, all just came back basically and like I basically broke down talking to her about it because you can see I couldn't have that conversation like the, what I've explained to you earlier on I was trying to explain that mm. but I just couldn't do you know what I mean I, it was raw at the time so she um, gave me a contact number for her friend who was part of the team of the magazine who was a birth trauma specialist so yeah a couple of weeks later I gave her a, a call we had some conversations she diagnosed me we, we spoke we spoke through what it was, which I think was the important thing. And it's common. One in 10 dads will experience some kind of postnatal depression, which is part of the reason we wrote this book, you know, is to um, let men know this is what other people have been through and have done, you know? So I've been very careful in the tone of the book not to tell anyone what to do. Like, I don't tell anyone what to do. Like, I very rarely give advice. <laughs> do you know what I mean? People ask me for advice all the time. I'm like, I have no advice. What I can do is have conversations and tell stories. Shall we? Yes. Eat some of this delicious food. Calamari looks good. Calamari here with the tartar sauce. We've got the tree killer, avocado, mozzarella, and tomato. Can't wait to dig in. Let's do it. Amazing. Thank you. You mentioned advice earlier. Can I press you on why it is you don't give advice to others? I've often felt that advice between men is hard to give and hard to receive and that's another mm. part of the problem of masculinity isn't it if we yeah. can explore that i mean why do you think that is do you know what? that's a that's a good point I, I, that's a great point i haven't i don't think i unpacked unpack that myself mm. for men giving advice can be seen as preachy 
I'm very careful in the tone of everything that we do. You don't come to MFF for advice. Like you come to MFF to hear from other people. So when we were writing the book, I was very clear to say to all the contributors, at the end of your book, like don't give advice. Don't give advice. But talk about what you would have maybe have done differently. Mm-hmm. What you have learned through your journey. Like that's you giving advice without giving advice. You know? And for me, I feel like that's a better way that men will receive it. But it's a great question though, because I think it's something that I'm going to think more about. It's a really interesting question. Stories, as opposed to advice, seem to be the way that men have historically listened to what other men have had to say and then put into action in a way that they feel they have adapted. It is actually a very, very interesting thing to explore because I see my wife and uh, we're probably balancing out now, but she had a much wider friendship network at the time. You know, back then I would have a few friends that were my best friends and other acquaintances, but not people I would, you know, go to and, and speak to. Whereas she's just really good at keeping in touch with people, you know, like she does it quite naturally. It's she's another problem that men have, isn't it? Men don't just sort of prod to see that the other blokes are yeah, alive. Yeah. yeah, we don't. And I, I was on I was on Loose Women the other day and they were debating do women deal with breakups better than men? Divorces in marriage. That's interesting. And they said they concluded in their opinion yes and they they said because the way women will have their lives set up is that they will already have like a a social circle to fall into they will already have people that are already kind of talking about their day-to-day their ups and downs they can kind of seamlessly go into afterwards whereas us men we're less likely to have that we will have our friends but we don't see each other as often we don't check in on a daily basis when we do we're much less likely to just tell the truth Maybe we'll talk about football or talk about whatever it is, you know, or be banterous or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're less likely to just be like, yo, this is what it is, you know? Now, do you think that that's to do with the role that secrets play between men? Is it secretiveness? I don't think it's secretiveness. I think it's just a symptom of the idea that we need to appear as having our shit together. If you do have yeah. your shit together and if you are, say, riding the crest of a high wave, doing really well, again, when I use the word secretiveness, I mean they hold back the information that would make what they've been through relatable or seem achievable to other men. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is, it is rare, isn't it, to meet someone who will give you this, the transparent way they did things. And I try to do that as much as possible. You know, with the book, I've spoken to loads of people who want to self-publish, just be like, look, this is how I did it. Like, and yeah, I think, was it important to you that this book was self-published? It was the only option. You know, we went through the traditional route, and the response that we got was that we love the book, we love the writing, we love the ideas, but you're not famous enough. You haven't got enough social media following. You're not famous, basically. Mm. I was like, do you know what? Fuck that. I know this is a good idea. I am on the ground talking to dads every day. I know exactly what they're thinking. This book is needed. So we decided we're going to self-publish, launch a crowdfund on International Men's Day 2020. In the first day, we raised £4,000. The first week, we raised £7,000. Within 10 days, we'd raised £12,000. And for me, I was like, that's all the validation we need to know that this is something that people need. What have been some of the outstanding moments in this journey for you, talking to the men who have contributed to this book and many of the other men besides that are part of MFF? When um, I did the independent article and loads of people were getting in touch, and there was a guy called Alec that got in touch, Alec Grant. And he emailed me and we arranged a phone call. And I remember the moment I was in, this, in my parents' box room and we spoke and he explained that, you know, when he's uh, he had one son who was free at the time, and while 
his wife was giving birth shortly after the baby was born, his second son, his wife passed away. And I'm very, really speechless. Like I like talking, right? Like, like I, what, yeah. what, what do you say to that? Yeah. And so having that conversation, that stuck with me, that will stick with me forever. And he, he, he wrote for the book as well. We're really good friends now. Um, but what I've learned from Alec is that, um, that people who go through trauma and tragic moments, they just want you to be normal and speak to them. Mm. Like, you don't have to have a solution. You mm-hmm. don't. It's not about you. It's not about your emotions. It's not about how upset you feel. It's not about how you feel like they're going to perceive you for asking. It's not about you at all, to be honest. Just be normal. Just ask the question that you want to ask. Just be, you know. I've learned so much from him and going to his house, having dinner, you know, meeting his kids. We're like, we're good friends now. We talk, we talk loads. And another moment that really sticks out to me that I don't think I could have got to without Alec was um, a guy called Matt, Matt Boschel last year. He posted on LinkedIn just after Father's Day, I think he posted that uh, he uh, it was a picture of a graveyard and um, a Father's Day card. It basically, was his daughter's grave. His daughter got hit by a car at 11 years old up in Coventry. And the card was the same card from the last year before that his wife had put there. And every year she, she does that now and they go and see the grave. I basically just messaged him on LinkedIn and I was like, do you, like, do you want to talk about it like we do this stuff do you want to have a conversation he was like yeah you want you know so we spoke for about two and a half hours and you know him speaking about in detail the moments when he found out going to the hospital of switching off the machine of going the whole thing like that conversation you know it was it was just crazy man like it was a lot of tears you know and i've realized people that go through things they actually want to talk about it and what they find not everyone of course but a lot of people i've spoken to find that we are are awkward about it and all they want to do is just talk about it but no one wants to talk about it because everyone's like too scared of saying the wrong thing mm. or mm. too scared of upsetting the person mm. when actually they just want it to be fucking normal i think lastly at the qpr event that you'll see in the becoming dad documentary matt um who had lost his daughter came to that event he kind of he came and saw me. He was like, "Can I share?" Basically, in front of the dads, like. So I was like, "Yeah," and uh, he just got in front of everyone and um, just told his story, you know. And I knew what his story was, but the other dads didn't know. Just seeing that that interaction and then seeing the response from everyone else of going and hugging him and shaking his hand and telling him much how much he, they respect him. That is. For me to, to 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 experience that in a setting that I guess I've curated beats any accolades or any congratulations for anything that you've done. But yeah, those moments, yeah, really special. It's so important what you're doing. Really, it just leaves me to say just huge congratulations on the book. Thanks very much for making the time to come and meet me at Isola Bella. This has been amazing. I've loved it. I want to do it again. <laughs> this is actually a brilliant idea. And I think it's been the highlight of my week, to be honest, you know, like... Given all that you've had going on these past few weeks, Elliot, I will take that further and put it firmly in my cap. It's been great. Thank you very much. Really good.